Turn again this morning to the Gospel of Mark with me. Reading Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43 this morning. Hear God's holy and the word. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and endured much at the hands of many physicians and spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any more? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and saw, he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by hand, he said to her, Talitha Kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Well, we're reading this morning two more accounts of Jesus healing, uh, one that's sandwiched around another, and there are some notable parallels between both of these accounts. Uh, both of them are, are females that Jesus heals. Uh, both of them have something to do with 12 years, 12 years old or 12 years of suffering that, that um, highlights the, how desperate they are. Uh, both present Jesus with um, uh, uncleanness, uh, ceremonial uncleanness that he confronts and overcomes. Both, both cases highlight faith and uh, belief. But especially the, the parallel between both of these is, is the desperate, hopeless situations. 
Um, in the Roman Catholic tradition, the Orthodox tradition, they have the practice um, of praying to saints, which we, we don't and don't believe is biblical, but especially praying to apostles. And uh, one apostle, apparently, historically, has gotten a lot less attention than all the others uh, in those traditions. Uh, apparently because the names Jude and Judas are uh, really the same name. We call them Jude and Judas uh, because they're so similar. Um, uh, people in, in these traditions historically have not addressed the Apostle Jude for fear of somehow accidentally addressing uh, Judas Iscariot. And so uh, the idea is that you had to be really desperate to pray to St. Jude because it was kind of risky. And so St. Jude has been known to history as the patron saint of lost causes or hopeless causes. And this has been, this chapter has been called the St. Jude chapter. Uh, the the Gerasene demoniac that we looked at last week being the, the pitiful graphic first example of that. Um, so this is a passage that addresses particular top, the particular topics of, of desperation and of faith. In Jesus. So I want to consider very simply this morning these these two cases, uh, what, what they are and what happens, and then secondly consider a few lessons and applications that come from that. So the first is the case of, of Jairus. Who comes to Geneva to Jesus? We're told he's uh, a synagogue official. That would be someone who's uh, appointed by the a group of elders in the community to basically oversee the synagogue. He was sort of an administrator uh, over the, the building and the services and everything that happened in the synagogue. And it's interesting we don't find um, Jewish leaders like this coming to Jesus with any kind of respect or request uh, genuinely very often at all in the Gospels. But Jairus comes and bows down and pleads with Jesus. And he's pleading for his daughter. We read in verse 42 that she's only 12 years old. Uh, she's entering the prime of her life. Luke's account, or it, uh, she's, she's at the, the, the point of death, um, evidently barely hanging on. There's not hope that she will live left. Uh, Luke's account tells us that compounding that, this is Jairus' only daughter, in fact, his only child. Compounding his his grief, so he's Jairus is powerless to help her. Um, the situation becomes more hopeless after Jesus is delayed on his way. Um, verse thirty-five: uh, People come to him and say, "Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? It's it's too late. Uh, why why bother now?" It's been suggested that maybe the girl wasn't wasn't really quite dead because of what Jesus says in verse 39. The child has not died but is asleep. But Jesus is speaking figuratively there, pointing to uh, what he's going to do, pointing to himself as the, the hope of resurrection. Um, it, it, certainly the, the people would know uh, whether she had died or not. They had, um, Jesus, it says Jesus saw a commotion, verse 38, people loudly weeping and wailing. It probably reflects the ancient practice of hiring people to come and weep and wail uh, and play flutes when someone had died. Um, we weren't likely to be mistaken. Jesus also used the same language of uh, Lazarus, his friend Lazarus, when he had died and been in the grave several days. He said um, that he's, he's sleeping, uh, pointing his sisters to his power over death. Um, 
and to him is the resurrection. Uh, nevertheless, everyone uh, goes immediately from wailing to laughing at Jesus. Um, the girl is dead. Hope is lost. Uh, why are you? Why are you giving these people hope? Um, the second case here is this uh, bleeding woman. Uh, evidently, had some kind of menstrual bleeding for 12 years. And that would carry with it pain and a constant matter of hygiene and cleanliness. And the, the word in verse 29 that describes this for affliction is a word that's often translated something like torment. Uh, or it's a word that can be used to, to mean to whip someone, to discourage someone. Uh, this is what describes what she's been suffering for 12 years. We can also think beyond the physical suffering and hopelessness, just perhaps uh, embarrassment that she suffered, uh, or constantly being unclean, ceremonially unclean. It affected her socially in terms of worship before God. Uh, this woman is also powerless and, and hopeless. Um, verse 26 tells us that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. Uh, she spent all that she had. The idea is she she spent all of her money on on ancient medicine, and um, it hadn't helped at all. In fact, she'd gotten worse. Uh, it's interesting. There's a there is a prescription, an ancient prescription in the the Talmud uh, for uh, uterine bleeding. So this is a reflection of of ancient medicine. It says this: uh, Take the gum of Alexandria. Take the gum of Alexandria and the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, and of crocus the same amount. Let them be bruised together, given in wine to the woman who has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take Persian onions, three pints, boil them in wine, give them to her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux. And if this does not cure her, set her in a place where two roads meet, let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let someone come up behind her and frighten her, and say, Arise from thy flux. So this is ancient medicine. Maybe this is the kind of thing that doctors had tried with her. Uh, needless to say, it hadn't worked, uh, and, and she had only gotten worse. And so two people in this passage who... Um, are helpless, are powerless in their, their physical need. Uh, and yet they find hope in Jesus. Um, we can't know what they heard or what they knew of Jesus. Maybe they'd been following him in the crowds for a while and, and had seen some of his ministry. But both of them come to him in some kind of faith, some kind of hope. Uh, and both find healing. In verse 29, we read that immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed. And then of Jairus' daughter, in, in verse 40, they're laughing at him. He sends them all out of the room. He takes along the child's father and mother and his own companions. We read in Luke that that's just James, uh, Peter, James, and John. And entered the room where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. So Jesus heals in both helpless cases um, through these people's faith. Well, I want to consider Jesus' lessons then, lessons, lessons for them, uh, lessons for us. And the, the first two of these, under number two in your outline there, the first two are maybe more, 
more easily translated to our situation and our, our lives. Um, the third is more difficult in some ways to come to conclusions about just what, uh, just how exactly we should connect Jesus' actions and his words here to, to our lives and to our faith. Uh, so uh, the, the first lesson uh, given to the woman here is simply have peace. Have peace. And we should understand the woman was someone who was not at peace. Um, we could compare her to the leper uh, who came to Jesus. We studied that several weeks, uh, a number of weeks ago. Um, remember the leper's boldness in coming into the town, breaking all kinds of social conventions and even laws to come into the town and to approach Jesus, to come right up to him. Um, by law, this woman should not have been out among the crowds being unclean. Uh, far more than that, should she have been touching uh, Jesus uh, by their conventions and, and laws, socially, legally, this is inappropriate all around. And, and we're told that when Jesus started looking for her, she was terrified. Uh, and so she, it, it took great boldness, and she was terrified, not at peace in this scene. And she had confidence and faith enough to come to Jesus, despite her shame and uncleanness, but she was still trembling. And so it's important to note that one of the things that Jesus says to her is, Go in peace. Go in peace. What does Jesus mean by that? Does he mean be happy now that you feel better? No, I think he means more than that. He, he first says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. And that translates the, the Greek word sozo, for, for save, for salvation. It's a word that has a broad range. It can mean saved in the sense of our, our justification in Christ. or It can mean simply being, being healed, getting well of some physical disease. Um, I think likely here it points to more than just her, her bleeding stopping. And Jesus seems in verse 34 to make a distinction between peace and healing. He says, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So not necessarily the same thing. She's to be reassured that she has peace with God. He received her in his compassion despite her uncleanness and her, her, her brazenness in this. She should have peace. She should have peace that she's right with God, that her condition of unholiness was overcome by Jesus and his compassion. She didn't have to be terrified or ashamed. It doesn't address it explicitly here, but it just points to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to, to bear this woman's sins if her faith is, is truly in him. That's, that's ultimately the only way that she or anyone can have peace with God. You can compare the healing of uh, the paralytic uh, back in chapter uh, 1, I believe. Remember, the, the paralytic's friends went to all this trouble to get him up on the roof and then to dig out the roof and drop dirt and sticks on everybody and Jesus inside and then drop the man at Jesus' feet. He's paralyzed. He can't walk. Uh, it's obvious what he needs. And what does Jesus say? He says, your sins are forgiven. Right? Highlighting the, the greater need for peace with God. And one, one encouragement here for you is, is to come to Jesus despite your uncleanness. The, the clean and unclean laws in, in the Old Testament uh, were not there. God didn't give those because there was anything inherently wrong with or sinful about pigs or menstruation or touching a dead body or whatever it was. But they were outward illustrations 
of everyone's need all the time to be cleansed by God from sin. Be cleansed by God, by, by His ways, by His means. You and I have every reason to tremble coming to Jesus in ourselves, right, like this woman. And yet we also have every reason to come boldly to Jesus for forgiveness because of stories like these, ultimately because of the cross, because of his going to the cross for your sake. Imagine, imagine walking up to Jesus in a crowd like this woman did with a giant billboard over your head with all of the worst things that you've ever done and said and especially thought uh, plastered over that billboard. Um, every one of us, I think, would have almost unbearable shame in doing that. And yet Jesus welcomes and embraces you. He embraces those who come to him humbly. He's paid for all the things plastered on that billboard. They're erased. So we need to be careful as well, I think, not to confuse physical comfort or happy circumstances with peace, with peace with God. Uh, as a second lesson... Uh, for Jairus here, just very briefly, uh, don't be afraid. This is what uh, Jesus tells Jairus. As he's being told that it's too late, Jesus says, verse 36, Do not be afraid, only believe. That's very much what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in the boat, in the storm, on, on the Sea of Galilee. Right? That he is with them. They are with Jesus. They're not to be afraid. And Jesus, at, at this point, didn't tell Jairus what he was going to do. Right? He wasn't, but he wasn't to fear. But similar to the disciples, when they came to Jesus, they weren't supposed to somehow know that Jesus would calm the storm or what he was going to do. But they weren't to fear because he was with them. And... To confirm that, though, in this circumstance, Jesus goes on to prove that not only does he have powers we've seen over the weather, over Satan and demons, over disease, but over death itself. Uh, to confirm that. And then thirdly, I want to wrestle a little more deeply then with, with how this particular story, this kind of account of Jesus' healing... Um, how it applies to us and our faith, because belief and faith are a significant theme uh, in these, these accounts here. Uh, verse 34, again, Jesus highlights the woman's faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And then in verse 36, do not be afraid, only believe, he says to Jairus. But what does this passage call you to believe? What are you to believe? We're not in the place of this woman or this or, or, or of Jairus uh, exactly. We're not in their circumstances interacting personally with Jesus in the way they did. What does this call you to believe? It's, I think it's not hard to see that we can apply this passage to having peace with God despite our sin or to uh, not fear because Jesus is with us in his Holy Spirit. But in terms of what happened in this account... Does this passage call you to believe that Jesus will, for example, heal you physically? Or that he will uh, fix your marriage? Or that he's calling you to faith and, and Jesus can and will give you healing or answer your other needs or requests as you see them? What does it teach us? We have, you know, right now very heavy concerns and prayers in our congregation for healing. Uh, that adds to the urgency and difficulty, maybe, of, of answering this question. 
What does this teach us to believe? Are we to believe that we can come to Jesus and expect he will give us whatever we ask? There are many who answer that question with yes. Right? There are faith healers or the whole word of faith movement that says yes. And, and they would quote verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And say that's normative for the church. Come to Jesus in faith and you can, you can speak into your life whatever it is you need or that you want. If you just have faith, strong enough faith, or if you are touched by someone who has that kind of faith, or if you send in enough money, as the case often is, it's often taught that God has given us this, this gift called faith. It's this thing that we have that's powerful in and of itself, and if we will just exercise it, uh, we will be healed or have whatever we're asking for. Uh, on its face, I may be isolated from other teaching of Scripture. That Maybe that seems plausible. Jesus healed this woman. He healed the paralytic. Right? Why not me? If we're careful, we can be led away from the kind of faith that we're, we're called to in Jesus in this kind of a, uh, an account. If we simply assume that everything that Jesus does or every interaction he has in the Bible is normative for us, we can be led away from biblical faith. If we say, well, Jesus wasn't married, none of us should be married. Or Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you should sell all you have and give to the poor, so that's normative for all of us. This is not power to read all of these accounts in the Gospels. Sometimes sometimes ignored in passages like this, that Jesus also raised a girl from the dead here. Right? If, if Jesus intends us to think that we can infallibly come as the woman with, with the hemorrhage did and ask in faith and have whatever we're asking for, healing or broken relationships fixed or whatever it is, then should we not also expect that we could avoid death? Or that we could ask for our loved ones to be raised, as Jairus experienced. But there are no faith healers who are raising people from the dead. It's in the same passage here. We need to understand rightly again the point and the purpose of Jesus' miracles. It's not to plug ourselves into the story and think that it's normative for all of our needs. They were never central to his ministry. They were never ends in themselves. Jesus' miracles functioned for a brief time to confirm his word, to confirm his identity. They, they functioned to confirm his preaching about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is here. The king and judge of the world is here, so repent and believe. They function to demonstrate that he is the powerful Savior King sent by God to judge, to save the world, that he can be trusted, that he can bring about the promises of God. And Jesus' miracles are not ends in and of themselves. They, they point to, they are a taste of the, the full redemption that's still to come, that's still future to us. It was never his intention to bring that in fullness in his ministry. Jesus uh, preached in the synagogue that first time that he from from Isaiah, that he is the the fulfillment of that. He's the, the savior of the world, come to free captives from captivity and and give sight to the blind and so on. But 
even in his earthly ministry, when he left, when he ascended, there were still believing people in prison. There were still believing people who were left blind by Jesus. Because his, his, his promises, his full redemption, that full healing and full salvation was, was yet future. Even though his miracles gave tastes and assurances of it uh, in that time. The, the Bible never once promises that we can have a, an absolute expectation of healing in this life or an absolute expectation of broken relationships being repaired or of avoiding death or of avoiding all kinds of suffering. How we should be clear, it is, it is good and right to bring these things to the Lord, to ask for these things. We should ask for these things. God is powerful. He loves His people. And He may grant what we ask. He can. He is able, but we know that He will always do what is good and right. Even if it doesn't match what we see as, as good and right always. The Bible doesn't present Jesus as some sort of genie that if we rub him the right way or approach with the right kind of faith, then he will answer. We get all kinds of goodies out that the rest of the world doesn't get in terms of outward comfort. In fact, it's certainly arguable the Bible presents believers as expecting more outward suffering less relief than the rest of the world. And that final rescue that we're waiting for is Jesus returning again. Again, that this is not to say there's not rich blessing and benefit in Christ forever. There, there, it includes eternal life, a new heavens and a new earth, the end of pain and suffering and sin one day. It includes now new life and rich blessings beyond physical comfort, the fruit of the Spirit we can enjoy like no one outside of Christ can, joy and contentment and peace and hope and assurance. So I think an account like this indeed calls us to believe as well, to believe not that Jesus will necessarily grant whatever we want or ask, but something great. To believe that He is who He says He is. That He will do what is good and right. That He does answer prayer. One of the biggest errors of, uh, of, of some of the Word of Faith movement or whatever is thinking of faith as some independent entity that we have that is powerful in and of itself. That if we exercise it, it has innate power. Faith is nothing apart from the object of faith. Right? We're called in this passage to believe that what God wills will happen. To believe that what God promises would happen. To believe that you belong to Jesus. That He's with you. That there's no reason to fear that ever changing. It calls us to believe what Paul confesses in Romans 8. And he asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? In other words, Paul is implying all of these things are going to happen. Right? They may last for years, they may last your whole life, they may take your life. But, he concludes, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So don't be afraid, only believe. Uh, this little girl, like Lazarus, uh, was raised to life, right? But she, she and Lazarus died then again, two years later. Right? This was a miraculous awakening, but it was not the resurrection. Right? It was not to somehow make Jairus or his daughter think that they could forever avoid death. It was to point them to, to Jesus as the one in whom ultimate victory over death is found. Ultimately in the resurrection. And that's how his, his miracles function. And in fact, Jesus, Jesus describes life, the Christian life and discipleship, as a dying a dying to self for the death of the old man. You're not here to, to save your life, but to spend your life because you've already been raised with Christ. Paul says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Jesus disclosed with Jesus' words to Martha after Lazarus had died and yet he was about to raise him to life but only to die again as, as, a, as a pointer to himself. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do not be afraid. Only believe. May that be our our hope and confidence as well. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again this week for your word and for the confirmation that this passage is of your, uh, again, of your love and compassion, of your giving peace and overcoming uh, uncleanness and unworthiness of your power to do uh, whatever uh, you will, of your love and delight to uh, help and to heal. We thank you for the, the confirmation that this is of our, our hope of one, one day when, when all of our suffering will be gone and all we'll know is, is fellowship with you and, and peace and without pain. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have that uh, as our hope, especially in the midst of particular pain and and longing and burden in our congregation now. We pray all of this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.